My friends who listen to Future Primitive, this week we are with Polly Higgins, lawyer for the earth. She's an international lawyer, barrister, an award-winning author, proposed to the United Nations in 2010 that ecocide be the fifth crime against peace. Since then, Polly has been invited into governments across the world to advise on the law. She has been voted one of the world's top visionary thinkers by The Ecologist and named the Planet's Lawyer by the 2010 Change Awards. She was the overall champion of the 2012 People and Environment Awards and was chosen to deliver the 2012 Rachel Carson Memorial Lecture. Her first book, Eradicating Ecocide, won the People's Book Prize. Her second book is Earth is Our Business. And her most recent book is I Dare You to Be Great. (laughs) Welcome, Polly. Well, thank you very much, Joanna. I'd like to be on your program. Good, good, good. So um, I will ask you straight off, what is it for you to be a great human being? Huh. Ah, uh, well, I, I <laughs> yeah. that's not an easy question. Oh, it's, it's definitely an aspiration, not always a reality. Right. <laughs> um, I, I, for, for me, it's, it is about, you know, living my purpose and it's about being true to myself. Um, I suppose you could call it authenticity. Um, but yeah, I'm very, very interested in how we self-authorize in our lives and choose how we determine what we want to engage in and where we choose to put our energies, our life force, if you like it, you know, Mm -hmm. I, whether or not we put it to greater purpose or whether or not we, we allow life to just simply buffet us along So really, for me, this is about how I, anyway, choose to engage with the world. And for me, to engage with the world is is to see how I can really rise up and stand as an earth protector uh, and call on others to do the same. That's that's maybe what my greatness is, or certainly what I'm aspiring to. You know, I was thinking about something while I was uh, reading you and so on, and I was thinking how a big, a big triumph from where we're coming from is that a lot of us call the Earth Mother Earth. But 
Maybe when we say Mother Earth, then we're thinking that she should protect us, which which she does, of course. But how do we convey to people that we need to protect her? Do you know, that's a really good point. And in fact, for me, I, I find it very difficult to use the phrase Mother Earth. It's very much an indigenous term. And maybe it's my legal training. For me, it, it does actually potentially cause problems, certainly outside the kind of traditional indigenous way of thinking, the Western world, mm-hmm. where um, it, it connotes some form of dependency, child parental dependency. Whereas I, I, I don't actually see it like that. I think actually this is about a responsibility we carry as adults, as human beings in this world, and that responsibility is to first do no harm. I, it's, it's a duty of care, if you like, which we extend quite naturally to our, you know, our families, our children, our friends. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actually this is about expanding our cycle of concern to just humans, but to the wider earth community, if you will. So for me, it's, it's very much about, uh, rather than it being based on uh, looking up to a mother, um, it, it's more a kind of, I, it, it's, a, it, it's the ebb and flow of reciprocity. Our earth actually does protect us in many different ways, but also we owe our earth a duty of care. I, just as we would extend that to those around us who are our family, that, that, that duty of care doesn't stop there. Actually, it extends right across the world. Yes, yes, beautiful. I I love that expression, duty of care, and um, how uh, that must extend to all living things. Um. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was going to say duty of care. It's a, it is in fact a term. The legal duty of care, and I, indeed, in America, Canada, Britain, and many other countries, we we as parents, for instance, have a legal duty of care to protect our children. Teachers have a legal duty of care to protect, ensure the protection of the children under their auspices when they're in school. Mm-hmm. I and but it, it's it doesn't have to be. Uh, position of superior responsibility to to a lesser responsibility in terms of child parent or child teacher, I it, it can be you know on an equal basis just as you know, an employer has a duty legal duty of care to ensure the safety of his employees mm. or her employees. So it, it's it's the actually interconnectedness if you like of life. And when we look at it in terms of that interdependency, interconnectedness, then what we do see is that the only way that can operate successfully is if it is based on care, Uh, that it's based on protecting, it's it's based on being life-enhancing, nourishing, uh, rather than life-destroying and depleting and abusive. Beautiful, yeah. So... For me, de-objectifying, in other words, uh, 
I, I, I was brought up to think that uh, all things supposedly non-human were objects and and even as a woman uh, mm. I was considered an object as well. This de-objectifying process has taken a long time for me. Uh, but you, you started by choosing to uh, serve beauty. And then at a certain moment, while you were serving beauty, the arts, you got this awareness. And it seems like it was quite sudden and yet you were able to change in a moment. So would you talk to us about the moment you became aware about uh, the earth and our duty to care? Well, you know, there is this thing that it said, we have maybe six or seven critical choice points in our life, moments when I... You know, a thought or an event can happen that can have profound impact on us and it, it drastically change the trajectory of where we're going. And indeed, actually, what happens is it's kind of like a moment of transcendence, an inner wisdom, you know, an understanding mm-hmm. or an, a knowledge or, or something comes through that that actually shifts your perspective on life. And in a way, I that. That, I mean, that can happen a multitude of different ways. It's whether or not we hear it and respond to it and, and move forward on that basis. And it can be deeply profound. It, it can actually fundamentally shift the way we perceive our world and how we engage with it. And for me, there's been a number of kind of different iterations of that through my life that I can see. I One of them being I when I was still at university and really engaged in Hundertwasser's work. He's, he was an Austrian artist and ecologist. And he was also very political uh, in, in his, and outspoken about using his art as a platform to take forward messages of caring for the earth. And I found that deeply, deeply inspiring. And indeed, he talked about trees having rights to trees having being tenants and that we had a, a duty to safeguard them and that for me was very very inspiring and actually opened up my my perspective of of how i viewed the world and indeed then greatly informed me as i moved forward and then understood it at a deeper level when i became a lawyer uh, and understood it within a legal context. Because in a way, what, what happens is, certainly with criminal law, criminal law is actually a reflection of our moral laws, if you like. The moral duty of care is then imposed within the legal duty of care. So, for instance, the moral duty of care for life is enshrined in the crime of murder. We have a legal duty of care to ensure that we do not kill Mm-hmm. I, uh, at an individual level, if it's a collective level, then the, the duty is to ensure that it, it, instead of it being murder or homicides, then uh, genocide, and we have that enforcement through the criminality of, of whatever the harm is. So it really, in a way, what it was, it was speaking to my my kind of value basis of where I I, I, I was wanting to engage with the world. And so to end up, in a way, it's no surprise, I became a lawyer, and that in itself became part of a process of deeper personal as well as professional inquiry into 
the big question of my life was how do we create a legal duty of care for our earth? How do we protect our earth and law? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what do you what do you consider? What do you consider is the the proper, maybe the dignified moral stance towards the earth that we need we need to have? What is the the, the moral stance that inhabitants? need to have towards the earth? Well, do you know, this is, this is a very interesting thing. I mean, I've written books on um, earth law and what have you, but I'm not sure we need to do anything. The word need bothers me. I... I when I, I when my first book went into second edition, I decided to purge my book of the word need. And to my horror, I discovered that I had the word need, in fact, the phrase we need to uh, 71 times. <laughs> and I decided I was going to eradicate that out of my book and to say it's a choice. That's all. It's a choice. It's an informed choice. I The choice is ours that we continue with exploitation, extraction, uh, despoilment and complete uh, annihilation of our earth for want of corporate gain, or we choose to stop that and we choose to protect our earth. So it, it becomes an informed choice and that comes down to responsibility. Do we choose to put in place a law that imputes responsibilities and duties upon quite frankly, just a few thousand people, but it just so happens to be the few thousand who are in charge of the world. So you have CEOs and directors of the biggest transnational corporations of the world and indeed the ministers and and prime ministers of 200-odd countries of the world. It's a choice and it becomes a very informed choice when you, you actually shine a light on the harm and say, where do we stand on this? Do we choose to allow this to continue? Because if we do, we remain complicit in it. Or do we choose to stop it and afford proper protection to the earth and by dint of that, in fact, enable and empower our own communities to flourish at a, a micro level, if you will. I So for me, it's not about telling people what they need to do anymore. Uh, and I feel slightly you know, ashamed that mm-hmm. I kind of sledgehammered that in the first edition of my book. But right. a few years back, I, I stepped back from that and realized that it's simply a choice. And that choice is informed by our conscience. And it is our conscience that will save whether or not we must stop the harm. I And of course, as our conscience starts, to engage with issues, then what happens is it becomes untenable to cause such atrocities. And it, it, it comes to a point where collectively there's an inevitability that this law will be put in place. So, I, I mean, I perceive us moving in that direction anyway. Of course, I'd love it to go very fast. <laughs> and yes. maybe what I'm is accelerating that process by inviting people to engage more consciously in protecting our Earth. 
I through a law that does that. I but for me, in essence, it's unstoppable anyway. The choice is whether or not you come on board with this and help assist assist to facilitate in place, or or whether or not you choose not to. And that that actually is very much a, a an individual choice, if you like. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the law itself, all it does, in a way, is it creates a informed choice. But the difference is this, with consequences. If you choose to continue with your, for instance, dangerous industrial activity that causes ecocide, then you will be held to account in a criminal court of law. I, uh, and that is about us all being accountable in this world that I actually, if this is going to cause serious harms to the collective, to the wider community at large, then there has to be some form of check and balance where others do not want that serious harm, where it's it's untenable to allow that to continue because of the significant adverse and severe impacts. But again, it's a choice. Uh, in, but instead of today where you have big transnational corporation, mm-hmm. it's reckless. It, it knows that it's causing serious harm, but it chooses to disregard it because there are no consequences when you put in place consequences for that, then very different decision-making happens. And indeed, investors make very different decision-making on that. And so it facilitates, for instance, the innovation in the other direction. But also what it does is actually it aligns our human law with higher law on a principle of further harm. Now, the person who's running a company that's causing dangerous industrial activity might not understand it on that level, but those who help facilitate put the law in place, quite a lot of people will, uh, and they will understand that this is really about uh, paving the way to peace and harmony rather than conflict and destruction, and indeed conflict uh, over resources, which ultimately ends up with resource wars. So it, it's it, it's um in a way it's quite a complex narrative if you like it's quite sophisticated legal reasoning i but i i also i i do think that a lot more people understand this a lot better now than say when i first proposed it nine years ago uh-huh. i partly because we're now living in an age where we have far greater understanding of the adverse impact of what what is happening on this world and what 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 can be done to, to prevent it yeah. Well, here we are on the morning after these uh, midterm elections, the American midterm elections, yeah. that, that have been yes, that have been seen as uh, as a referendum on uh, on Trump's mandate. And uh, I mean, when I look at it for myself, uh, well, what I object to, of course, I object to a lot of things, but what terrifies me is um, this uh, this idea of uh, him facilitating burning down the house. And uh, so yeah. what worried me the most when I saw the, infom- the, the, the infos this morning was that they will still be able to the Republicans will still be able to appoint a lot of judges. I mean, as many judges as they can. Yeah, and, yeah. 
Then you brought me back to your work and how um, how important it is that this be uh, brought to the attention of the courts. I mean, it's it's tough, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, where are you with dealing with the law and? Do you encounter a lot of judges who uh, won't agree with your point of view or do agree? I mean, where are you with that um, with that legal work? So first of all, what's to be understood here is that to put in place an international criminal law, I, it's not American judges who decide on that. And indeed, America actually doesn't have any say on ecocide becoming an international crime because America's not a signatory of the Rome's statute, which is the governing document for the International Criminal Court. I, the countries that are signatories to the International Criminal Court, there are 124 of them. That's a decision that, that's vested with those signatories. And once it's in place, then it becomes an international crime. Uh, whilst America is not a signatory, what it does do is it I, means that in the event that any I, decision made by Americans that causes ecocide in ter- other territories, yes. this is about applicability of international criminal law right i so i uh, you you have um ceo directors of big transnational corporation i don't know take your pick of fossil fuel corporate american fossil fuel corporations and uh, they're committing ecocide but america doesn't recognize it on its homeland however should any one of them step out into a territory that does recognize and uphold uh, international crime under the principles of what's known as universal jurisdiction, then he, or in the unlikelihood she, can be prosecuted elsewhere for a crime that has been committed, not necessarily on that territory of that country. So I'll give you an example. Back in I, 1998, I, General Pinochet came over to the UK I from Chile mm. and a Spanish judge, Balthazar Garzon, issued an arrest warrant for him for crimes against humanity from Spain over to the UK for to have him arrested and tried in, in the UK or in Spain for crimes against humanity that mm-hmm. occurred in Chile. So he was arrested in the UK and he argued, you can't touch me. I'm my country is not a signatory to the international crimes. And it went up to our what's now known as our Supreme Court, and they said it does. The principle is known as universal jurisdiction, and you step into a country where we uphold justice and international criminal law, we therefore can arrest you and charge you, and um, we can issue court proceedings. I, so it set a principle, a precedent, if you like, mm-hmm. for I being able to actually address ecocides that occur either in countries that don't recognise the crime or, or when individuals move out of those countries into countries that do recognise it as a universal jurisdiction and, and universal justice issue. 
So this is very important. I mean, there is actually another benefit, if you like, is that America not being a signatory means that they have absolutely no say in terms of how this proceeds. They, they don't even, you know, there is no delegate that can attend the meetings as it proceeds to take ECOSIDE forward as an amendment to be included as an international crime in the International Criminal Court. And right at the moment, given the government you've got, that's probably a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. Uh, I sort of see the 50%. It seems to me this morning that 50% of the people in this country are either not aware that we're burning down the house or they don't care. And so this, your work feels even more important to me this morning. Yeah, I, I can really understand that. And I have huge sympathy because you know there's a terrible sense of grief when you see yes i you know that huge absence of care that <sighs> the, the sense that you know there's a terrible injustice playing out here uh, and a complete and utter failure to take responsibility i for for want of looking after humanity and the earth as a whole yeah i, I my heart goes out to you today actually Thank you. Yes, yeah i can yes, understand yes. that i mean it's uh, it's it's a paradox that uh, the more i deobjectify the earth the more i i become aware of uh, of the the interconnectedness we are with the earth the more yeah. the more grief the more grief one feels yet yeah. I read here, we are at, you say, you spoke at Schumacher College and you said, we are at a point of emergency, a state of emergence of something new. Speak to us, Polly Higgins, about the emergence. (laughs) Well, I, I... I have a sense that when I, society becomes very polarised on issues, it's actually a golden opportunity for a change to take place. And I've seen this myself. I remember being up in I, Norway some years ago when I first proposed ecocide crime. And I, it was explained to me, you know, Polly, nobody's really going to engage in this in this country because we're all kind of okay here. You know, we, we've got really massive pensions because the state has invested in fossil fuel over the years. Yeah. We're all quite happy. Everything's fairly easy. You know, NGOs get funding from the government. People don't fund. They don't do kind of charity giving because the government does it for us. And there was this sense of, wow, nobody really cares. But it wasn't that they didn't care. It was just that there was no deep motivation to engage with it. However, that's changed. And that's changed quite significantly now in Norway for a number of reasons and I was back there in 2013-14 I was uh, I was uh, the honorary Arnie Ness professor 
at Oslo University. Mm -hmm. And I saw quite a dramatic change in that time where people were really starting to engage on climate change issues and were really beginning to feel very concerned about it to the point that while I was there, I saw a march which in a country where people don't march, I've been told people don't get out in the streets. And this had been just after there had been a very tragic killing that had taken place in the country where a man had gone out with mental health problems and, and shot a number of children at a at children's a youth camp. Yes. And the interesting thing was, was that the government... What have we done in society? How have we failed so much in this society that this could even happen? Which was a remarkably insightful uh, response to it, rather than, you know, he's an evil man, he should be locked up. Yes. It was to, to self-question, what, what is it in society that's gone so wrong that this has happened? And what I started to see was that people really started to, it almost gave them permission to stand up and speak out. Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets at that time. And it's enabled people to start to have a conversation in a way that hadn't been possible before. And to start looking at, in fact, the social iniquities that were evolving and had until then remained hidden in in Norway, especially with... um, I, refugees and such like but also I'm seeing it here here in the UK in fact even within the last month with the the IPCC report the 2018 IPCC report that came out just last month in October I where that report has made it absolutely critical crystal clear that we have to take action now uh, drastic action has to be taken very soon to turn this around. Uh, that we're in a position now that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is imperative and falling short would lock in climate impacts so catastrophic our world would be unrecognisable. And suddenly what I'm seeing here in the UK, especially with grassroots organisations like this, the amazing Extinction Rebellion, where young people and and people of all ages are actually standing up and saying, I am prepared to be arrested uh, and I will stand up and I will participate in civil disobedience Mm. to really call to attention that there is a a wanton disregard by our government, a complete failure on, on their part to take any action, political inaction with regards to climate breakdown. Actually, it's being framed as climate breakdown. Yes. not climate change, right. because this is the beauty of it. When something is broken down, you can always do something about it. Whereas climate change, people argue, well, it's happened before, it'll happen again. But if it's broken down, then you can you can begin to look at why is it broken down, what is it that's required here, and how can we come together and mobilise to stop this from continuing? 24 years of climate negotiations, where has that gotten us? Absolutely nowhere, we're in a- worse position not better Mm -hmm. i and so there's something happening here where now rather like last century it was conscientious objectors standing up now we have conscientious protectors individuals who refuse to remain complicit in the serious harm and the politics that are enabling that to happen and are standing up 
and rising up actually to say, I want to see this change. This must stop. Fossil fuel extraction must stop. And indeed, just the other week, we had uh, thousands of people outside our parliament blocking the roads, absolutely prepared, all of them to be arrested and charged, without you know, prepared to, to let that happen, to the point that the police actually didn't do anything for over three hours because they were so um, taken aback by the fact that people were standing there without fear, mm-hmm. but were doing it because they care because they perceive themselves as protectors of our our wider earth community. And do you know what was so wonderful was that actually this wonderful girl Mm -hmm. from Sweden, I think she's 11 years old, and she has gone on strike from her school to stand up, to call on her parliament to start to do something about climate change. And she's inspiring school children elsewhere. Her school teachers have been joining her and she was brought over to speak here as well. And that's absolutely fantastic that young people are really engaging in this. They have a strong social conscience. And this is, it doesn't mean that we've got, you know, hundreds of millions of people doing this. It may just be a few thousands, but it is, it is actually changing something because now, these conversations starting to emerge where people really want to speak about the grief they're feeling at how we have to do something to protect our earth before it's too late. And that's the sort of conversation that hadn't been happening before. That's really, that's important. And people are actually becoming mobilized. They're becoming empowered to stand up and speak out and say enough, no more. This must end. And that's going to grow. That's going to grow really exponentially. I, I, I'm very sure of it. I'd be very interested to see, you know, even within the next few months, six months, a year, where this is going to go. I think we're going to see far more school children and people of all ages standing there blocking roads. I mean, I, I was hearing about one 92-year-old man who was blocking the roads outside our parliament the other week. And the police kept on... I getting him to stand up and immediately he would lie back down on the road and they said, we're not going to arrest you. And he said, well, I'm going to stay here until you do arrest me (laughs) (laughs) so that I can take them to our judges and explain to them what's happening because I'm a conscientious protector. And that's very powerful. Beautiful. I I would just like you to speak the name of this 11-year-old girl and because I... I just want to hear her name. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure she's called Amy. And uh, let me find out. Yeah, okay, um, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's a remarkable individual, yeah. Yes, yes. I'm just, uh, just so happy to hear about her. I would like to ask you before we, we close about your relationship with uh, what we call small nation states and uh, what you feel mm. yeah who who Explain are, that. yeah who are they and uh, how do why they're so important yes yes before i do i have i have her name it's greta thunberg okay and she's actually 15 years and she's 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 cutting class to fight climate crisis, 
So yeah. she's she's sitting outside the Swedish Parliament, an effort to force politicians to act on climate breakdown. Beautiful. Uh, so this is powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. Thank I, you, Greta. And Thank she's you, in Greta. Other schools are beginning to join her. Yes. Quite remarkable. Yeah. And she's doing it because she has a strong social conscience. Now, the, the small island developing states, in fact, I, I often refer to them now the great ocean states. Mm. I so many of them are in Oceania, I the Pacific, I the you know the greatest ocean in the world. And we we belittle them by calling them small island developing states when truly they're great ocean states mm. and they see themselves as seafarers. I but they of course are on the front line of climate breakdown with the rising sea levels and the tsunamis. And for them, this is an existential humanity crisis. So those are the countries that are really engaging with ecocide as an international crime to stop um, the worst excesses of climate ecocide and to take this forward as a climate crime into the International Criminal Court. So here's the challenge. Those countries, the smallest ones in the world, have the least amount of money to actually take this law forward. And here we are, some of the largest countries in the world with the most amount of money not taking it forward. So it seemed to me that there's a match there to be made where we can actually help fund, essentially crowdfund, the law that we wish to have in place, that we can see is required to be placed and help fund delegates from those small islands, those those nation states, to take it forward into the International Criminal Court. And that's why we set up the campaign Mission Life Force. So uh, what we're doing is we're inviting all those who care and all those who wish to see the earth protected to sign up and help fund them, to attend those meetings, to actually, practical stuff, food, accommodation, flights, to get them there mm-hmm. so that those representations can be made. And I have a number of lawyers and experts, forensic experts, judges, who offer their time pro bono to give assistance in this regard. In fact, we'll be going out there in a month's time to this year's assembly in The Hague and making big representations again on ecocide crime. But ultimately... I can't present this uh, for amendment. That has to come from a head of state. And so that's why we're filling the gap, if you like. We've recognised that there's a gap there that without funds, those smallest of islands, I shan't even manage to get a seat at the table to make those presentations. Hence, we've set up our crowdfunder. It's a, it's a crowdfunder with a difference. It's based on a legal document. I, it's the Earth Protectors Trust Fund. So when you sign up, you become an Earth Protector in law, which is rather lovely. I, but most unusually, you, you actually you have very little obligations. I save to gift in. I, it can be a one-off or it can be a recurring amount into the pot that is used exclusively for the advancement of reconciled crime into the International Criminal Court. And it's very exciting because last year when we launched it, in just three weeks, we managed to raise enough money to take a a team of 11 people 
into the assembly. Uh, and this year, we're hoping we're going to have enough to, to do the same again and bigger and louder this year. So watch that space. Join us and, and participate in the journey. We, we really require more trustees, earth protectors in law to come on board with us. And if you want to do that, uh, you can sign up at right. missionlifeforce.org. Yeah. That's, that's our campaign website. And, and to Americans, don't be intimidated that uh, it says, for instance, that you can co- contribute 10 euros. They will take your dollars, uh, no problem. So credit cards internet are accepted and dollars will be will be accepted so yes exactly happy happy to make any donation right. no matter what currency right exactly exactly <laughs> um Polly in closing I'd like to um ask you when uh, I mean this is such a, a big subject you mentioned that it's it's a campaign just like the abolition of slavery it's obvious but yet it's a very very big change um how do you take care of yourself when you feel despair or overwhelmed how do you love yourself through this yeah. <laughs> well, there's a the thing. Um, I mean, inevitably, there are always days uh, when you think this this is not going to work. I, although most of the time I'm actually very upbeat. Uh, it, what I do do, and it has made a significant difference in my life, uh, in a very big way actually, is I earth every morning. I I go out on my bare feet, come rain or shine or mm-hmm. snow. And I put my tootsies into the earth mm. and I connect with the earth. I plug in, if you like, and have a little bit of a conversation with the earth and give thanks and gratitude and, and literally plug into my my life force, if you will. Because really, you know, I do subscribe to the idea that we are all in, interconnected and interdependent. And that being the case then... It's very important for me, especially in my line of work, so to say, as an earth protector, to really plug in to the kind of universal socket mm-hmm. <laughs> through the earth, quite literally. And it's it's something that's to be deeply nourishing uh, at a very practical as well as mental and spiritual level for me. So I'd invite everyone to do that. I, I mean, I do tend to go barefoot as much as I can, although we don't live in the warmest of countries, but as and when I can, I do. And it, it's I mean, there is science behind this now to show that a, when we connect with the earth, we do align with the earth's frequency, which is a theta frequency. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, then our capacity to be creative, to heal, to be nourished is, is far more expansive. So it's part of my meditation practice. Uh, it's a very proactive aspect. I but I love it. And I, in fact, my whole team are doing it now. And we all really find ourselves very in harmony with what we're doing and with each other. Uh, and we do 
attribute that in part to the earthing that we undertake every day. I haven't quite managed to persuade my husband to do it on a regular basis. <laughs> so I do it for him. Great. <laughs> uh, but really, there's, there's something about this, you know, that's, I think, goes beyond my understanding. And it's a great, great way of kind of waking up to the world every morning. Thank you so much for being with us, Polly. Yeah, thank you. It's been really lovely to be together. Oh, no, likewise. Absolute delight. Thank you. My honour for being on to your show. I I, I wish you well. And, uh, yeah, Yeah. I watch this space. A lot's going to happen very soon, I hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you.